You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. So about a month ago, we started a series through the book of Exodus. About 10 years ago, we did a study through the book of Genesis. So now we're just picking up on that study we did 10 years ago and continuing through the book of the, through the Old Testament and particularly this book of Exodus. Exodus is one book in a five-part book series, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There are five books that build on each other. So each book starts with a phrase, so, because it's tying you in to the previous book. And so we jumped in and we realized that Exodus is a historical narrative. So that's why we're, it's a narrative. We're doing chapters at a time because that's sort of easy way to deal with narratives. It's written by a guy by the name of Moses. He's the author of the five books of the first five books of the Bible, the author of the book of Exodus. So Exodus is really sort of a biography of Moses's life and, it's in, and he's, he's writing this book. And so we jumped into Exodus chapter one and two and we came up with these five words as a way to summarize the book. Misery, midwives, Moses, murder, and Midian. So when you start in Exodus chapter one, just to give us a brief recount before we get to chapter five today, start in chapter one, God's people, the Jewish people are multiplying as God has promised, but they live in Egypt and Pharaoh takes note of this. And so Pharaoh is putting a lot of burdens on the Jewish people because he sees that they're growing and he's fearful that they're going to take over the land. And so he's adding misery to them by not only giving them things to do, work to do, but he also gets so paranoid about their population growth that he has the midwives commit abortions with these babies that are born. He basically says, if it's a baby that is born from a Jewish lady, if it's a boy, kill him. But this is where we get to the midwives. The midwives hear Pharaoh make this command, but they don't follow Pharaoh's command. And they say to Pharaoh, by the time we get there, the babies are already popped out, right? They're just, they're, they're really healthy women who produce the babies too fast. And so when we get there, we can't do anything about it. So he gets angry about it. And he says, well, then we're just going to up the ante. It's not just about the midwives. Anybody that sees a Jewish baby, if you see them, throw them in the Nile River and drown them. And so it moves then to the story of Moses. So when this decree is made, Moses' mom, who probably gained courage from the midwives not killing the baby, says, I'm not going to kill my baby boy. That baby boy's name is Moses. She keeps him for about three months and he starts getting loud as three months old do, can't keep him quiet. So she knows she's got to do something. So she puts him in the Nile River. When she puts him in the Nile River, it just happened to be that Pharaoh's daughter was close to there. And Pharaoh hears Moses crying. She goes and takes off the lid and looks at Moses and finds, he finds favor in her eyes. 
He's, as Moses would speak of himself, he was good to look at, right? And so he says, she saw that and kept him. It's just so happened that Moses' sister was by where Moses was. And by the way, I say just happened, um, being sarcastic, right? We know this to be the providence of God working everything together. And so Moses' sister's there and she's like, hey, I'll take care of that baby for you, knowing Pharaoh's daughter wouldn't want to do that. So Moses' mom and sister get to raise Moses for nine to 10 years while Pharaoh's daughter didn't want to deal with all that stuff. So she gets to, to raise him. And then about 10 years old, Moses goes to the house of Pharaoh and he is educated and raised then in the house of Pharaoh till about the time that he's 40. About the time that he's 40, he's going out and he sees an Egyptian leader mistreating some of the people. And he gets really ticked, his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and he sees him and this is where murder comes into play. He murders the guy who's mistreating him, buries him in the sand, thinks nobody knows, comes back the next day. When he comes back, some of the Israelites, the Jewish people are fighting against each other. And he's like, what's the deal? Like, did you see what happened last? Like, I'm, I'm helping you not be mistreated. And now you're mistreating each other. And they respond with, are you going to do the same thing to us that you did to the Egyptian? And he's like, uh, bad, you know, this bad deal. So he realizes that he's made a huge mistake. Pharaoh finds out about it as well. So Moses runs to Midian in the wilderness. And that's where we get those four M or five M words from. He ends up in Midian in the wilderness being a shepherd. And God is gracious to him, provides him with a wife and two boys while he's there. But he's just keeping sheep. And then we come to Exodus chapter three and four. In Exodus chapter three and four, Moses is keeping sheep in Midian and he comes around a mountain and he sees this bush that is on fire but is not being consumed. And he's like, that's a really weird thing. I'm gonna go investigate that. He goes and investigates it. And when he gets close, God calls to him out of the burning bush and says, Moses, Moses. And he says, as we talked about last week, here I am, right? And then God goes on to instruct Moses of, in what we call Moses' call, that this is what you're going to do. You're, you've been, you were in, in Egypt for 40 years. You've been in Midian now for 40 years. Now you're 80 years old. I want to send you back to Egypt to deliver the people. That's the call of Moses. And then the majority of chapter 3 and 4 is Moses and God having a dialogue. And it's Moses saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Not strong enough. I mean, all the excuses that we use with God when he calls us, Moses is using all those with God. And Moses says these things to God, but God responds to him and says, I'll be with you. I am, I'm for you. I'm gonna provide. I'm gonna give you exactly what you need. And then he does it. So Moses and Aaron, he, he gets a buddy because he, he just didn't want to do it. And God says, well, I'm going to send Aaron with you. And so they go. He tells Aaron, Aaron's like, I'm in. And they're going to Pharaoh. And so when we come to the end of Exodus chapter 4 and verse 31, this is how the story ended there. Exodus 4 and verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So when we finish chapter four, there's this anticipation that's come with it. 
Here's Moses and Aaron. They're back in Egypt. They're going to go before Pharaoh and they're going to say, you're going to let the people go. And we see the people of Israel believing God and worshiping God. And so if we're just reading the story for the first time, when we come to Exodus chapter five and six, we're expecting this to be like, this is, is the, the pinnacle of the, the, the show, right? Like something good is about to happen because they have believed God and they're worshiping God. And so go with me to Exodus chapter five and verse one, and let's see how the story unfolds because it feels like at the end of, chapter four, that we're really moving in chapter five to something spectacular that God is going to do because the people are believing and they're worshiping God. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter five, I'm not going to have the verses on the screen today. So I'd encourage you pull out your phone, your tablet, whatever, get your Bible app up. If you've got a physical Bible, go to Exodus chapter five. I'm going to read portions of scripture today. So I want you to be able to follow along. So in Exodus chapter five, verse one, it says this, after Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So this is what he's been called to do. Moses is being obedient to who, what God has called him to do. And it's interesting the phrasing that Moses chooses to use in Aaron. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, when a messenger would come and stand before a, a Pharaoh or a king, this is how they would talk to the king. They would say, thus says the, and they would give the name of their God. And then they would say the God of whatever tribe they were. So it's interesting to me that Moses and Aaron are following sort of the protocol of the day. They're doing it exactly like other messengers or prophets who would come before Pharaoh and say, hey, this God said we should do this. They're following the same terminology. And so he says, this is what the Lord says, Yahweh, all caps there, the God of Israel. But Pharaoh responds in this way in verse two, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, this wasn't how it was supposed to go, right? They believed and worshiped God in verse 31. Now we're coming to chapter five. This should be like, it's getting better and better. Like it's about to be the best part of the story. And yet Pharaoh says, I don't even know who your God is. Now, we can be hard on Pharaoh and say he was being rude and uh, being hurtful and saying that he didn't know God. But in the reality is there was a lot of gods in this time. And so it, it could be true that Pharaoh really didn't know who Yahweh was, that he had never heard that name of that God. He knew who Israel was obviously, but he may have never heard the name Lord or, or Yahweh like it is translated here. So, so he may not have genuinely known and said, listen, I, I really don't know who that God is, and I'm not going to let Israel go. So Moses and Aaron reply with the God of the Hebrews. And again, this is them being kind. Hebrew, when they call them Hebrews, that was sort of a derogatory term towards them. It was the term that the Egyptians had made for them. So rather than the Jewish people, the children of Israel, when they would call them Hebrews, that was a derogatory term. And so in a way, 
Moses and Aaron are trying to get it in words that he would understand what he's talking about. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And look at the kindness of Moses and Aaron. Please, let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. I love the humility with, with, with which Moses and Aaron are going before Pharaoh. Now, we know if you've read the book of Exodus, you know the story that's coming, right? It's going to get a lot more confrontational and uncomfortable. But, but in this moment, they're being respectful of those in authority over them. Right? They're, they're please, right? They're, they're doing the way that they had asked them to do it of saying, the, saying thus says the Lord, the, the God of Israel. But one thing to note is that when we study the whole and we know what's going to end up happening and we read that Moses asked for a three days journey into the wilderness, some people have said, well, was Moses being cowardly? Because that really wasn't the goal that they would go out three days worship and come back to slavery, right? Like God was promising to deliver them. So was Moses being cowardly in his ask? Rather than just coming out and saying, let my people go, period. Was he being cowardly by adding, and we just want to go out to the wilderness for three days and worship God? What, for my study, what I found was he wasn't being cowardly. It was sort of the assumption that when he would go and worship the God that they probably wouldn't come back. So it wasn't that Moses was trying to get around what God was asking him to do, but the reality was it was sort of an easy way to ask what about eventually was going to happen. So it was a good way for him to approach Pharaoh by saying, hey, let us go three days. We're going to worship the God in the wilderness. Pharaoh knowing they wouldn't come back, right? But this was a nice way for, for Moses and Aaron to ask without it being hurt, hurt, without it being in your face. Number four, verse four, but the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said in verse 5, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. This is not going how we thought it would go. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmaster of the people and the foreman, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather the straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that you made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So Pharaoh says, here's the deal. They're a bunch of lazy bums because they want to go worship their God in the wilderness. Let's make it harder for them. So now you're going to make bricks and you're going to have to make the same amount of bricks, but you're not going to have the straw to do it. You're going to have to go get the straw, get the straw to where they make the bricks, make the bricks, and then get them to where they need to go. And you need to produce the same amount. And so what we find after this is obviously this doesn't go well. It gets harder and harder. They can't physically do that. He is literally trying to work them to death. 
He's not going to kill them. He needs their labor, but he's going to work them so hard that they're not going to have time to rest or worship God or anything because they've got to do the same amount of work that they were doing with less of the materials. Now they got to go get those materials and bring them in. And so you can imagine life is getting harder and harder for the children of Israel. So they go to Pharaoh and they say to Pharaoh, like, what's the deal, man? You expect us to make the same amount of bricks without having the straw, without you bringing the straw to us. Like this is impossible for us to do. And look at verse 17, how Pharaoh responds. You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. Pharaoh's like, stop coming to me. If you got time to go worship your God, then you got time to do more work for me. So it doesn't go well when they go to Pharaoh. He continues to bring on them more and more work. And so verse 20 says, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, this is the children of Israel now talking to Moses and Aaron. The Lord look on you and judge you because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So now they've complained to Pharaoh. Now they're turning on their spiritual leaders as well. Isn't that interesting that in verse 31, they believed and worshiped God. And now just 20 verses later, they're turning on their leaders and saying, this is all your fault. Isn't it interesting how history repeats itself? I think we see this happening in the church today. That we're leaders of the church are being turned on by decisions they're making. People that have led people for years. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, it's your fault. We'll stop there. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh and to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people and you have not, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses gets it right here in this moment. When the people come and complain to him, Moses turns to God. You see, the children of Israel had turned to Pharaoh. The children of Israel had turned to their spiritual leaders, Moses and Aaron. But Moses does the right thing and he turns to God. And he says, God, here's the deal. I'm frustrated with you because you're not being good. I'm frustrated with you because you're not fulfilling your purposes. This is what you said you were going to do. You're not doing. You're not doing the actions that I told you that you said you were going to do. Remember the whole burning bush experience and me and you talking and you're going to do this. And and now I come and the people have believed and worshiped. And now all of a sudden they hate me. What, What are you doing? See, chapter five doesn't go the way that we think it will go coming on the heels of chapter four. In fact, chapter five is all about problems. It just compounds for the children of Israel, compounds for Moses. And I wanna give you three observations 
that I have from chapter five, and then we'll get to chapter six. Here's, here's the first observation from chapter five. Obeying God does not mean you will not have problems. Obeying God does not mean you will not have problems. Was Moses and Aaron doing what God had told them to do? Yes. Go back to Exodus 3 and 4. This is what he had said. Go to Pharaoh. They were being obedient to God. Did it mean that they didn't have problems? No. Obeying God does not mean that you will not have problems. It's interesting. Jesus warned us of this. In Mark chapter 5, he's using the analogy of your heart being the soil and the word of God being the seed. And he says this in Mark chapter 4 and verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. Like Exodus chapter 4 and verse 31. They believed and they worshiped. This is exciting. But look at, listen to verse 17. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. This is what happened to the children of Israel. And this is what can happen to us. When we do what God tells us to do and problems come in our lives, we think, ah, maybe that wasn't the right decision. Although we know the Bible says this is what you should do. Listen, there's a part of Christianity today that teaches this idea that if you obey God, you'll not have any problems. I want you to know that is false teaching. And if you listen to anyone who says to you, obey God and he'll give you everything you want, turn them off. Don't listen to that podcast, right? Don't listen to those sermon clips. Block those people. Because the Bible does not teach that if you obey God, you will not have problems. In fact, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have problems. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Obeying God does not mean that you will not have problems. I think as as a church, we get that. But if you're new to our church, I want you to know we believe that. We know that being obedient to God sometimes will make us unpopular. Being obedient to God sometimes will cause us to have to stand out, to be ridiculed, to be made fun of. Because obeying God doesn't always mean that you're not going to have problems. The second observation that I have is that problems reveal what we believe about God. See, I found it interesting that we end in verse 31, with them believing and worshiping. And then in chapter five, in the end of that, in verse 22, they're like, you made us stink. We're dying here on the vine. Help us out. See, what happened is problems revealed what was really the heart of the children of Israel. It it, it showed what they really believed about God. And the same thing is true in your life. When problems come in your life, it will show you what you really believe about God. If I have a cup of coffee up here 
and you hit my hand, what's going to come out of the cup? It's okay. This, these aren't trick questions, really. <laughs> coffee, right? I, I hope coffee is what comes out of the cup. The same thing is true when you run into problems in your life. What comes out of you is what was already in you. And so problems just reveal what we believe about God. And so if you're looking at your life and your problems are causing you to doubt God, then you need to go back and say, what do I believe about God? Because at this moment, the children of Israel are being tested. Do they really believe that God is sovereign? Do they really believe that he works providentially in their lives? Do they really believe that he is good? In this moment, they're like, he ain't good. And he, he's not worth giving my life for. He's not worth following because it is revealing what they believe about God. And the same thing happens in your life. When problems run into us, what comes out of us is what's on our heart about what we believe about God. And so if it doesn't line up with the word in God, then we need to correct our thinking and make sure that when the problems hit us, what comes out is what God would have us to believe about him. So number three then, the last observation is this. Prayer is the answer to your problem. The children of Israel went to Pharaoh and they went to Moses and Aaron. But why didn't they go to God? If things got worse for them, why wouldn't they turn to God and say, God, we need you. Instead, Moses gives us the example of when problems come in our life, the place we go to is God. Prayer is the answer to your problem. Now listen, I think, and I can do this in my own heart and life, saying to people who are going through problems, just pray about it, seems lame. And even in the church, we make fun of people who say, just pray about it. Because we see prayer as like a third tier level in problem solving. Right? We don't see it as the first response. We see it as sorted down as the last response when problems come in our life. And so we work through all these steps. And then to say just to pray about it, that's a spiritual, that's a Jesus juke, right? Like what's up with that? Give me something helpful. But I believe that prayer is the answer to the problem, not because your problem is going to be solved in prayer, but because prayer orientates your heart to God. It gives you the heart of God. So then when you pray, you see your problem differently because you see it through the lens of God and you see it through the lens of his word. So prayer is the answer to your problem. I know this may shock you, but Ruth and I have marriage struggles from time to time. She is married to a sinner, unfortunately for her, and we have conflicts. And it's okay to laugh at that, right? I, there's this like hidden laughter, like, <laughs> like, do I laugh that they have marriage struggles? Like, ah, I don't know if we should laugh at that. It's okay. Everybody in this room who's married has marriage struggles, okay? Like, welcome to the family. Two sinners live in a house together. It ain't going to be a perfect marriage. It's going to have struggles. So Ruth and I have our struggles. And you know how I like to deal with our struggles? I like to, on the car ride home, think through how I'm going to argue with her on the issues that we're having. You know what I'm saying? I physically talk out loud on the way home, on the car ride home. 
Like, if she says this, here's how I'm going to go at it from this way, you know. If she brings up that topic, I'll talk about how she said she forgave me, right? You can't, can't do that, can't bring that up, that's off limits, right? And so I began to do this all the way home. Wouldn't it be better if rather than me sitting in the car arguing with nobody and people looking at me weirdly in the cars next to me, wouldn't it be better if on the way home I prayed and just went to God and said, God, here's the deal. I'm frustrated in my marriage. I, I love Ruth, but this part of her, and she can do the same to me, right? I'm not picking on Ruth. This part, this is hard for us. We, we keep getting stuck in this area of our marriage and it's constant frustration. And, and wouldn't it be better for me to pray all the way home and orientate my heart to God than to take the whole ride home and orientate my heart to myself? This is what Moses is setting us the example for. Is that prayer is the answer to your problem. Start with prayer. And then let God, listen, I still may walk in the house and Ruth still may give me the cold shoulder and I still may give her the cold shoulder because I'm frustrated and I'm still working through it. But isn't it better that I would take it to God and start there and then as God does the work on my heart, then I open my mouth to Ruth. So open my mouth to God first and let me and God work on it together and then bring it to my wife and we work on it together. Prayer is the answer to your problem. Let's not throw that as a, here's, here's something secondary. Here's a couple bucks, right? No, prayer is millions of dollars that we're giving people. When we say, hey, have you prayed about it? That is huge because you're going to the one who can do something about it. So how does God then answer Moses' prayer? I like what one commentator says in this response. The Lord did not tell him to cheer up, to brace up, or to get a grip. He tells Moses, he did not invite Moses or, or even promise Moses any change in his circumstances. But rather, he renewed the revelation of himself. God is going to build Moses' confidence by showing him what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. So God answers Moses by giving him more of himself. Look at chapter 6. So in chapter 5, we see problems. In chapter 6, we see promises. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now, we like that term now. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For I will, with a strong hand, will send him out. And with a strong hand, will drive them out of this land. God says to Moses, I, I know I've already told you this, but I'm telling you again, I'm going to take care of Pharaoh. Like, don't worry about Pharaoh. I am stronger than he is. I will take care of him. Verse two, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, this is the first time we hear this statement, I am the Lord in the book of Exodus, really in the whole of the Bible. Maybe in Genesis 48, it could be translated that way, but in this is the first time 
that we hear this term, I am the Lord. And over the rest of chapter six into chapter seven through chapter five, six times or seven times, the Lord says, I am the Lord. 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 Why is he saying to Pharaoh or to Moses over and over again, I am the Lord? Because he's wanting to remind him of who he is. He's wanting to remind Moses, listen, I've got this. I'm the authority. Know my name. I am the Lord. I will do what I said I will do. Can I encourage you today? If you find yourself in the midst of problems, remember who God is, that he is the Lord. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the one in charge. He has not lost control. He is the Lord. And so he says, remember, Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That is El, El, El Shaddai is how we would translate that. The, the idea that God is the all-sufficient one. But he said, makes this interesting statement. But my name, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Interesting. So God says, they know me as God Almighty or this El Shaddai, this one who is sufficient, but they don't know me as this Lord Yahweh. The idea is know is, is experience. So it's not that this is a different God that they didn't know. It's the same God. But what he's saying is in the book of Genesis... In that part, you knew me as this all-sufficient God. Now, through the story of the book of Exodus, you're going to know me as the Lord, this Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God, that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. So it's not that they didn't know God. It's that they hadn't experienced God in this way. They'd experienced him as El Shaddai. Now they're going to experience him as Yahweh. And he says in verse four, I've established my covenant with them to give them the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel from the Egyptians, uh, from the Egyptians hold as slaves and I've remembered my covenant. Now in verses six through eight, you find what some have said, the whole story of the Bible in verses six through eight. And here's what it says. I'm gonna read it to you. And as I read it, I want you to be looking for gospel glimpses in these verses. I'm going to show you some here, but I'm going to read it to you verse, first, verses 6 through 8, and then be listening for the gospel glimpses that, of what Jesus will do for us. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So in these three verses that Moses is supposed to take and say to the children of Israel, we find, I'm going to give you four gospel glimpses that we see in here. Look at verse six. 
What I mean by gospel glimpses is it's pointing us to something, someone greater who is to come, Jesus, and what he would do for us. Look at what it says in verse six. It says this, I will deliver you from slavery to them. So God is making a promise. The good news is they're gonna be delivered from slavery. Listen to how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter one and verse four for us who have believed in Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. In Galatians chapter one, Paul says, we have been delivered from this present evil age. As the children of Israel would be delivered from the slavery of Egypt, so too you and I have been delivered from this present evil age through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This is a gospel glimpse. This is where we're getting to see what Jesus is eventually going to do for us that he is going to deliver us from this present evil age. Do not forget, church, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not belong to this place. The Bible says we are sojourners, we are pilgrims, that we belong to a different kingdom. And he has delivered us from this present evil age. And to, to God's glory, we say amen and thank you for delivering us. Then he uses again in verse six, another gospel word glimpse when he says this, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This word redeem is really the key, one of the key themes for the whole book of Exodus. And it, it has the idea of, of carrying uh, the idea of, of purchasing. It's the same Hebrew word where we get kinsman redeemer. So if you remember the story of Ruth and how God uses a kinsman redeemer to rescue her, so this is the same idea that a kinsman redeemer was one who could avenge a murder of a relative or purchase an enslaved relative or provide an heir for a deceased relative. And at the end of the day, Jesus is our avenger, our purchaser, and our provider. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. And in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 16, uh, verse 13 and 14, it says this, he has delivered us, there's that word delivered again, from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has purchased our salvation through his death on the cross for us and has given us forgiveness of sins. As he's going to redeem the people from the slavery of Egypt, so too you and I have been redeemed from our sin. You don't have to live in sin anymore. You don't have to be in control by the present evil world anymore, but by the, the, the author of darkness. You don't have to be in control by him anymore because Jesus can set you free from that. He has redeemed you from that. He has purchased you from that through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we see this gospel glimpse in God's words to Moses to say to them. Then in verse 7, we see another gospel glimpse when Jesus says this, or God says this to Moses, 
I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. What is this a gospel glimpse of? This is a gospel glimpse of adoption that you and I were once not a part of the family of God and now we are a part of the family of God. Listen to Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem. There's the word we were just talking about. To redeem those who were under the law so that he might, that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. So because of Jesus, you and I can now be children of God. We are no longer slaves to the author of darkness. We are no longer slave to the one that rules this world, this earth, right? We've been set free from that. We've been adopted into the family of God. We're no longer under his rule and his reign. We are now under the rule and reign of God and we are a part of his kingdom. And we're adopted into his family and we can call him our father. And then the last one we see in verse eight is this, when he says, I will give to you for a possession. The idea is that he's giving them the inheritance that they deserved, that they didn't deserve, but that belonged to them because God had made a promise to them. We find this for us in First Peter chapter one, in verse three, it says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. If we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. This is a gospel glimpse. As Jesus says, I'll give you your inheritance. As you leave this, so to us. When we leave this earth, we will receive our inheritance in heaven with God. These are gospel glimpses that we see in Exodus chapter one, verse, or six, verses six through eight. But look at verse nine. Moses goes and he speaks thus to the people of Israel. The exact words. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I would say we, we probably get that, don't we? Like if you had spent 400 years in slavery and these last few months have been some of the worst months and Moses comes to you and says, Here's what God says. He's gonna deliver you. He's gonna redeem you. He, he, he's, gonna, he's gonna provide for you, right? He's gonna give you an inheritance, what he's promised to you. I think if we're really honest, we would say, I understand why they didn't listen. <laughs> because I think we've all been there in our lives. We've had moments where the problems are heavy and we, they feel harsh, really, let's be honest. And feels like this, this, my heart's aching. And so to hear the truth, I, I just, I'm not even gonna listen to that. And, and here, here's what I want you to know. If you're in this room today and you're in that spot, I love you and I'm so thankful you're here today. Because I know it's hard. 
to sit and hear us open the Bible and say things like, prayer is the answer to your problem when you're like, but it's gotten worse for me. And I want you to know this is a safe place for you. As you try to work through your relationship with God and maybe you, like the children of Israel, just you hear what's coming out of my mouth. You hear what's coming out of the word, but your heart is just hard right now and it's, it's hurt and it's going through pain. And, and I just want you to know, because I love you, I'm gonna continue to share the truth with you. But I want you to know I understand why you're turning a mute button when I talk. But you're here. And I know that God will work and he will draw you to himself. And at the right time, you will respond to him. See, we're just casting seed here. Week after week after week. The goal is that we just keep casting the word. And, and sometimes we have ears to hear it. And sometimes we mute our ears because we've been through a season of harshness or a season of just like, this is not what I thought life would be like. And I want you to know that you're welcome here and I love you and there's grace and there's mercy. But I also want you to know because I love you, I'm going to continue to share the truth with you. And I'm going to continue to cast the seed and by God's grace and when the time is right, you will respond. Because his grace is irresistible. When you see God for who he is, you can't help but respond to him. And I know that day will come. So he goes on in the rest of chapter 6. He, Moses and God dialogue. I love the reality of the Bible and just listening to Moses again, complain to God like, I can't talk. He says uncircumcised lips. Basically, I, my, my, my speech is faltering. Then in chap, chapter 6 and verse 14 through chapter verse 25, all of a sudden we deviate from God and Mo, Moses dialoguing to this genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And it seems odd, right? Like why this doesn't seem to fit the narrative. Like we're going along here and God and Moses are dialoguing. And all of a sudden out of the blue, there's this genealogy of Moses and Aaron. What was God doing in that moment? I'm not going to work through the genealogy because of time. But I would say this. God is affirming Moses and Aaron as the leaders of Israel. He is saying to the children of Israel, listen, you may be in Egypt, but way back when I was working through each of these people lines, these family trees to bring about Moses and Aaron. And so I've been working behind the scenes. I just want you to see that, that it just doesn't happen that Moses and Aaron just happened to be here. This is God working behind the scenes. And then it goes back to God and Moses dialoguing and God affirms in, in chapter seven, verses one through five of what he's going to do. And then chapter six, the tide is beginning to change. In chapter six, and Bob will walk us through these over the next couple of weeks, chapter seven through chapter 11, we have the famous 10 plagues where God begins to let us see who he is and how he works. But here's my observation from chapter six, and I'll end with this, and I, I wanna read some scripture over you today is this. Chapter six is, reminds us that God's promises bring hope in problems. 
In chapter 5, all you found was problems. In chapter 6, you find the promises of God. I will deliver you. There's seven I wills in chapter 6. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will give you your inheritance. I will. God's promises bring hope in our problems. So you got a problem today? Yes, we all have problems. Find a promise of God and it will give you hope in the midst of your problem. Because here's what I know about us. Our greatest problem was sin. In, in reality, it still is our greatest problem. But God in his promise provided for us his son Jesus so that we could have hope in the midst of a sin-cursed world. As we still struggle with the old man, we could have hope. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Because he knew what our greatest problem was and he solved our greatest problem through his son Jesus and gave us hope for eternity. And so my thing is this, if God would deal with our greatest problem through the person of Jesus Christ, I think he can handle your financial struggles. I think he can handle our relational struggles. I, I think he can handle us living in a world where it just, something doesn't feel right. So I believe in the midst of this moment, we can find hope as we rely on the promises of God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand today. And as we end our service, what I would like to do as a benediction to our service, a closing to it, I want to read over our church family five promises of God. And my prayer is that these five promises from God would wash over your soul today. They would wash over your heart. And for some of you, that it would capture your heart. As you go from this place with the problems and the struggles that you may have, that these promises would breed hope in you. So you're welcome to close your eyes. Just listen to the word of God being read over you today. The promise of salvation, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The promise of answered prayer, John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. A promise of victory, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The promise of forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the promise of guidance, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let's go in those promises this week and find hope in the midst of our problems. Thank you for listening. 
you're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.